0: And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten, because this is Club Book. This podcast features Eli Sazlow at Ramsey County Library, Roseville. Eli Sazlow is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, and a leading voice in the discourse around resurgent white nationalism and how to combat it. His first book-length treatment of this subject, Rising Out of Hatred, The Awakening of a Former White Nationalist, hit shelves in September. The book follows Saslow's relationship with Derek Black, a white supremacist from one of the movement's most high-profile families. In college, Black's interactions with people from different ethnic and religious backgrounds led him to question and ultimately reject the worldview of his upbringing. Saslow first introduced Black Story in 2016 in a seminal piece for the Washington Post. Saslow's previous works of note include 10 letters, The Stories Americans Tell Their President in 2011, which profiles a sampling of poignant letters received and responded to by President Obama. Among other high journalism honors, Saslow earned a Pulitzer Prize in 2014 for a hard-hitting Washington Post series on the rise in food stamp usage. He won the George Polk Award for National Reporting that
1: same year. Thank you. It's, uh, it's great to be here. It's really great to be in a library. Uh, I wrote a lot of this book in a library near my house. Not all of those memories are positive. Uh, writing is not always fun. So. Little bit of PTSD, but I'll, I'll, I'll manage it. Um, it's also uh, sort of still feels a little bit surreal to me to be now going and talking about this book because this is a story that I, I did not think that I would ever be able to write. Um, in mm-hmm. my in my job for the Post. Uh, you know, I, I sort of keep a list of stories that I would really like to do if they, if they could possibly come through, if I could convince somebody to talk to me. And this was a story that, that just lived on that list for almost two years as I continued to try to see if I could get access and win over the trust of the people to begin writing about it. Um, so. It might be sort of instructive to to know just how I found or heard about Derek Black. I, I was writing about Dylan Roof, who um, had committed an awful hate crime murder of nine people at a historically black church in Charleston, South Carolina. And Dylan Roof had spent time on this website called Stormfront, which at the time I didn't I didn't really know very much about. I'd heard of it, but I didn't quite know what it was. Um, so. In trying to understand Dylan Roof and the kind of things he'd been reading and the things that had inspired him in this awful direction, I went on Stormfront and, and began to learn about it. Um, Stormfront is like the largest racist website in the world and has been for two decades. Um, it's a community of like more than 300,000 people. Uh, the site is translated into four or five different languages. Um, it is—it's sort of the epicenter online for neo-Nazis, uh, KKK, um, extremist separatists, and also these, these people who would consider themselves like racist academics who spread false science, the false science of race, um, and, and do all of these really scary things. Uh, and, and as I went on Stormfront and began reading it, they were saying terrible celebratory things about Dylan Roof and what he had done. But I also noticed that the largest thread on this message board was about somebody named Derek Black. Um, So I started clicking on this thread and reading it. Uh, Derek, I began to learn, was the son of the founder of Stormfront, the son of Don Black, who had been the head of the KKK in the United States for nine years, and then, after going to prison, had sort of mastered early coding and started this this website. Derek was the godson of David Duke, uh, Don Black's best friend, and those two men had sort of raised Derek up from from the time that he was five years old to be the ascendant leader of this uh, white supremacist, racist movement. Um, And Derek, because he was remarkably smart uh, and almost sort of a savant in some ways, he spoke four languages by the time he was 17, uh, he went all into this. and was disastrously successful in beginning to mainstream some of these really terrifying racist ideas. Uh, by the time Derek was 20, he had a radio show that was on the airways in Florida, where he grew up every day, and um, he had uh, been elected to office in Florida uh, on a Republican a Republican committee, and um, winning 60% of the vote to to get this spot. Uh, You know, he was the keynote speaker at all of these white nationalist conferences um, in the woods of Tennessee. Uh, And he had sort of gone about telling white nationalists that instead of spreading, uh, you know, talking in awful terms about minorities and people of color and Jews, he had coached white nationalists to say, what we need to do is we need to try to get rid of the slurs in our language and we need to try to to speak to the uh, to the, this false sense of grievance that exists, unfortunately, for a lot of white people still in this country. Um, polls consistently show that about 30 to 40% of white people in the United States believe that they experience more discrimination than people of color or Jews. That is factually wildly incorrect by every possible measure that we have. But Derek and other white nationalists began to see that by talking to that false sense of grievance, by saying to people, you know this is your country, you should take it back. Uh, Isn't it too bad that there are signs now in Spanish, um, you know, we need to build a wall, we need to prioritize European only immigration. Derek found that that was a resonant message, it got him elected, and it began to spread some of this into the mainstream. So as I was reading this thread on Stormfront, uh, all of these people were talking about Derek because what had just happened was Derek had gone to college sort of late in life at 21 years old. He'd gone to the best school in Florida and the cheapest school in Florida, a small college called New College of Florida. Derek had gone to this college and over two years had experienced a radical transformation. And to the knowledge of all these people on Stormfront, Derek had sent a very public letter to the Southern Poverty Law Center disavowing this ideology, saying that he had made horrific mistakes and caused tremendous damage. Um, And then Derek, in the public space, had disappeared. He'd changed his name, he'd moved across the country, And all of these people on Stormfront were trying to figure out where he was and what they would do if they would find him. Um, So at that point, I figured out pretty quickly that uh, I also wanted to try to find him, to try to understand what had happened during these two years to make him uh, not only reconsider all of these awful ideas, but also come to such a strong conclusion on the other side that he was willing to break with his his family and everything that had existed in the first part of his life. so that's sort of where this reporting began. I, I found Derek living under a different name uh, in, in a different part of the country. He was in Michigan. And the first time I reached out to him, Derek was unequivocal in saying, no, it's too much of a risk to my safety to be written about. Um, I, think, I think Derek was afraid. I also think that he thought, in sort of a naive way, that um, this part of his life was in the past, and he was going to these terrible things that he'd done would be under his former name and they would stay there and he could sort of move on and live a normal life. Um, it, it was interesting in this case for me because as a journalist, you know, I spend all this time trying to compel people to let me into their lives and tell their stories. Um, and I think in this case with Derek, the thing that compelled him over the course of a year to change his mind and to reach back out to me is he saw all of these seeds that he'd planted in the country, he saw all of these awful ideas um, sprouting up all around him uh, in, in ways that really made him feel I think culpable in small ways for some of the the national conversations that were beginning to happen in the you know 2016 election and beyond. Um, and also I think he felt terrified by the real power of this ideology because it is you know these racist ideas are historically embedded in what the United States has been um, and unfortunately they still have, a lot of real power with big parts of our country and Derek recognized that more than anybody. Uh, So at that point he decided that um, we could begin spending time together and that's sort of how this book started. Uh, You know, it's it's such a long path to travel to sort of win the full access to people's lives, to be able to write about them fairly and accurately but also in ways that are really vivid vivid and personal. Um, and, And so over the course of two years, not only with Derek, but with all of these other people in his life, uh, including sometimes you know, spending to, having to spend time with white nationalists where I, I was in difficult positions, and also with people on the campus that helped change Derek's thinking and impacted him in all these different ways. Winning, winning trust from all these people, is a, it's a really long exercise. And, and eventually, my hope is that in this book and in all of my work for The Post, my presence in the story is not very felt because the story is told um, in this real-time dialogue of all of these people talking to each other. So Derek and all of these other people in the book not only ended up spending tons of time uh, doing interviews with me, but also gave me all of their G chat messages, all of their emails, um, all of their private communication that sort of showed the change of this ideology and unfortunately the spread of this ideology in real time. Um, so that hopefully as a reading experience, uh, it feels like you are sitting right there and watching these conversations take place. Um, and, and that was uh, that was sort of the real, I think that's really the meat of the of this book, is meeting all these people who began over time to impact Derek's thinking. when When Derek first showed up at this new college of Florida, he'd chosen the school really because he was essentially brilliant, his test scores were off the charts, and this was the best school he could afford to go to. New College is also, A really quirky school. Um, You know, a lot of kids don't wear shoes. Uh, It's like a lot of kids who go there are homeschooled. Derek was homeschooled, and I think it sort of felt to him like a natural fit. Um, New College is also sort of politically the exact opposite of the white nationalist movement. It's a place where social justice is super highly valued, and the kids are incredibly socially conscious. Uh, You know. Like mispronouncing somebody is a major aggression on this campus, much less running the, uh, the largest like, racist website in the world. And so Derek figured out pretty quickly once he got there that if, he, if anybody knew who he was, um, he would be ostracized, his campus life would be over. So he made this decision for the first six months to be basically one of the country's most prominent white supremacists on the internet and to be an anonymous student at this college um, he would go out in the mornings while his classmates slept and he would go to a quiet place on the on the campus quad and he would call into his radio show that was still on the air and he and his father would rail together against the multicultural takeover and then Derek would walk back to the dorms and sort of befriend whoever walked by and whoever was there um, and and this went on for close to a full year until one of the students on this campus um, was doing a, a paper for class about the biggest extremists in the country and was on the Southern Poverty Law Center website and began looking at these photo profiles of, of what were considered the most dangerous people in the country and then suddenly saw a picture of a kid who sat next to him in math class. Um, and uh, as you can imagine at that point, the school essentially exploded. Um, it, it was the biggest thing that had ever happened at this college. It was. Uh, a hugely divisive issue for all of these students on campus in terms of what should they do. And um, suddenly they knew they had they had one of the, you know, the rising star of a racist movement in their midst, and they had to figure out how to deal with that. Um, and how possibly could they impact his thinking, or whether they should just, just bar him out and try to get him kicked out of school. Um, a lot of these conversations at New College happened on a place called the Student Forum, which was like a, an online message board where students would argue about this constantly in real time. Um, so I'm going to read a few passages from the book, uh, and this first one is, is shortly after uh, Derek is exposed on the forum, and some of these students are beginning to figure out what they should do about it. This is from the book, but the print in the book is too small for me. I'm sure it'll be perfect for all of you, uh, but, uh, but I had to print it out. Yeah, I know, I need glasses. Um, amidst, the chorus of stu- amidst the chorus of the student forum, one voice began to rise above the rest, equal parts indignant and insistent. James Birmingham, 26, had already graduated from New College with a degree in anthropology, but he remained an active forum user and a staunch advocate for students of color. He was half Chinese, and in six years as a campus organizer, he'd helped coordinate marches for indentured farm workers and planned an annual conference where radical leftists from around the world exchanged ideas for breaking down the systems of oppression. One of those oppressive systems was white supremacy, which James had devoted himself to fighting ever since he was a 16-year-old heavy metal fan, and skidheads in the mosh pit began calling him a chink. Each fall at New College, James James witnessed the very real effects of centuries of racist policies and white privilege. He led orientation workshops for first-year students, and one group exercise in the manual began with students lined up side-by-side side at the bottom of a wide stairway. Take one, step up, take one step up the stairs if you're white, James would tell them. Take one step if you're male. One step if you're straight, if your parents went to college, if you own a car, if English is your first language, if your high school taught the culture and history of your ancestors. And year after year, James had watched the most privileged group of students, the ones who looked exactly like Derek, fly right up the stairs, just as they often ascended to the top positions in American society. Whites were better off than any other social group by almost every statistical measure. Income, net worth, life expectancy, home ownership, infant mortality, graduation rates, and on it went. And now, as another school year was about to begin, James began reading on the forum about Derek, who believed he was oppressed and victimized by a lifetime of anti-white discrimination. The ignorance and hypocrisy was too much for James to bear. One night that fall, James posted on the student forum again to offer his advice. Ignore Derek. Heckle him. Make him uncomfortable. Shut down classes at the college to protest his racist ideas. Some of you may be correct that ostracizing Derek won't change his mind, James wrote. But at least if he disappears, I can go about my daily business without having as much of an urge to throw up. So. I think sometimes now, uh, in the country, there's, there's like a, a debate about, you know, what do we do when we encounter, um, awful ideas, hatred, and different kinds of hate speech? Is it, is it more effective to, uh, respond with civil resistance to sort of bar out these ideas and, and, um, ignore them, uh, like make clear that they're not okay and, and have that be the first step, or is it more effective to try for some kind of discourse or outreach, uh, some kind of conversation. And I think one of the lessons for me in reporting this book is that's like a false binary choice. Um, I think really in Derek's story, both of those things were hugely necessary and actually worked very much together to begin to impact his thinking. Uh, James's campaign to to, to sort of force Derek off campus was hugely successful. Um, And in doing it, Derek, for one of the first times in his life, began to see reflected back at him just how awful his views were, uh, just just how not acceptable they all were, and also how hurtful they were to his classmates, it also meant that Derek had no friends and was like cast out from the school, moved off campus, and so when some students did begin reaching out to him, their effects on him were multiplied by the fact that nobody else was spending time with Derek. And So the first students to do that were two Jewish students who had been in one of Derek's classes during his first months on campus when nobody knew who he was. Uh, These students, their names are Matthew and Moshe, um, and and they're a really big part of this this book. Uh, Matthew and Moshe made a really, to me, interesting and sort of uh, courageous decision that what they were going to do was, um, rather than try to build a case against Derek's ideas and argue with him about them, they decided they were going to try to build a relationship with him, uh, hoping that that relationship in and of itself might help Derek begin to see past the prejudices uh, to the people and begin to see the humanity of people that had often been the victims of his terrible ideas. And in the the atrocious paradigm of white nationalist thinking, Jews are sort of enemy number one. White nationalists believe that Jews have propagated a, a scheme of multiculturalism, to try to destabilize the white race. White nationalists do not see Jews as white. Um, And Derek had written things on Stormfront when he was a kid, like, uh, all Jews must go, Jews worm their way into control over society, Uh, you know, this is the moment where all Jews must leave. And Matthew and Moshe had gone back through Stormfront, had printed all these quotes out to remind them of the full horror of these ideas, and had put these quotes in their dorm room. And yet, somehow, they found it within themselves to call Derek and invite him over on a Friday night to their apartment because Derek had no other invitations and because he knew these kids from his first months on campus, he said yes. Um, And then week after week after week, Derek began coming to these extremely unlikely Shabbat dinners uh, where it would be sometimes a half dozen students from campus, sometimes more, a really diverse group, uh, and they wouldn't talk about white nationalism. Matthew and Moshe's hope was they wanted Derek to keep coming back. And they thought that if they started to uh, press him on these things that he thought, he would, he would slip away. Uh, and and you know, so they made this really tactical choice not to talk to him about it. Um, one of their roommates uh, was a woman named Alison Gornick. And she thought that this was a terrible idea at first. I mean, she stayed in her room. She, she sort of protested what they were doing by refusing to see or be seen by Derek. Uh, but over the weeks, Derek kept coming over, and he was interpersonally kind. He was bringing kosher wine to these Shabbat dinners, and she started to get really confused and really curious. Something—it felt to her like something here doesn't fit. Like, how can somebody be saying these terrible things and yet also be making a really diverse group of friends on this campus? Um, and and Allison just wanted to figure him out. She's a she's now a Ph.D. psychologist. Uh, she's um, She's really intuitive about people and great at building relationships. And so she decided that what she was going to do was she was going to, almost like a puzzle, try to understand Derek's ideas, try to understand where they were coming from and why he believed them. And then she was going to armor herself with the facts to fight him on all of these ideas. Um, at one point, in order to understand white nationalism better, uh, that's sort of uh, what I think is a dramatic part, part in the book, Allison makes this crazy or, or heroic uh, decision to go undercover with Derek into the woods of Tennessee to attend one of these white nationalist conferences. Um, and this is a brief passage in the book from, from that stretch. Allison wrote a fake name on her name tag and slid into a seat next to Derek, keeping her head down and smiling politely, trying not to think about the neo-Nazis and skinheads seated all around her in the woods of Tennessee. She'd promised Derek she wouldn't have a panic attack or cause a scene with his family. So instead, she tried to imagine herself as a duck, placid and unruffled on the surface, even as her legs churned frantically beneath the water. She took notes as she listened to all seven speeches, writing down topics she planned to debate with Derek later. The speakers took turns insulting Jews, Hispanics, African-Americans, immigrants, often to rousing applause. But what Allison dreaded more than the presentations were the casual coffee breaks that came in between, Standing alongside Derek meant she had no place to hide. It seemed like all 150 people at the conference wanted to speak to him about his leadership, about race, about white genocide. And after a while, she began excusing herself to the bathroom, waiting until she was alone and then locking the door. Breathe, breathe, she coached herself as she swallowed the urge to scream. She turned on the sink to drown out the noise of the conference and ran cold water over her hands, washing them over and over until finally she felt calm clean. So when Matthew and Moshe found out that Allison had gone with Derek to this conference, um, they were really confused. Uh, and they were also irate because at this point they had been inviting Derek over to their house week after week after week for a full year. Um, and Moshe in particular, his, he comes from a, a family of Hungarian Jews that was all but wiped out at the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Uh, and to hear that a year into his outreach to Derek, Derek had just gone back to Tennessee to share a stage with David Duke, a Holocaust denier who um, essentially has spent his life invalidating all of Moshe's family experiences was uh, a devastating blow for, for Moshe and Matthew. Um, and, and I think also, it's really important to highlight how slowly this transition happened and and, and how much unbelievable persistence was required of all these people around Derek to stick with it. And and I'm gonna read a brief passage about Moshe that, that sort of describes what he was feeling at this time. Much of Moshe's childhood had been shaped by his grandfather's experience. He'd studied the Holocaust, taught himself German in high school, and read Hitler's autobiography. When Moshe was 17, he traveled with his brother to Bergen-Belsen, stopping at Anne Frank's gravestone and then walking down the camp road into the memorial, where he could see the sandstone foundation of the old barracks and the burial mounds pushing up against the dirt, each one adorned with a sign that read, 1,000 buried here. He looked at the camp's alphabetized roster of prisoners, flipping through until he saw his grandfather's name, and only then did he see the list of names that followed there were more than 50 people on the roster with Moshe's last name, some listed as victims and others as survivors, an extended family tree that went on for page after page. Moshe had returned home to Miami and watched documentaries about modern-day antisemitism, learning about Stormfront, Don Black, and David Duke. Moshe read Duke's autobiography, which contained passages about Duke's own visits to concentration camps, which Duke considered to be mostly a hoax. Duke said gas chambers in the camps were designed only to disinfect clothing. He said Holocaust survivors were were evidence that the Holocaust hadn't really been so bad. He said Hitler was a great leader, and Nazi Germany was in many ways the ideal country, an example worth following. And then Moshe brought all of that knowledge with him to New College, where where Duke's godson and protege happened to be in his first banking class. And instead of confronting Derek or dropping the class, Moshe had somehow found it in himself to befriend Derek, to invite him over for beers, to join him at Shabbat dinners, and sometimes speak with him in the German they had both decided to learn because of their divergent family legacies. A full year now. That was how long they'd been sitting together at the table on Friday nights. That was how long Moshe had been buying Derek's salmon, pouring his kosher wine, hoping for some kind of transformation, believing again and again in the essential goodness of humanity. Moshe wondered, What if all he'd done by befriending Derek was to enable him, to provide him with cover from the activists on campus, so he could continue to promote an ideology, a racist ideology, while living a comfortable college life? What incentive did Derek have to change? He had a standing invitation for Friday nights, he had a group of friends who would sit with him in the cafeteria, and now he had a new friend, Allison, who was willing to go with him from their liberal college to a white nationalist conference in Tennessee. Maybe she was on her way to becoming a white nationalist too, Moshe thought maybe all this time, it was actually Derek who had been doing the persuading. Uh, I'm going to spoil the rest of the book by saying that Derek was not doing the persuading. Um, you know, what was really happening was over these two years, all of these various methods that students were using were beginning to have an impact and parts of Derek's ideology were falling away. Uh, he, he, began to think that it was crazy to, to believe that Jews were, were evil. Uh, he, he, he sort of shelved that part of what he thought and, and thought that actually Jews were okay. And then just like that, other things began falling away again and again. Allison, um, you know, Derek had tried to base a lot of these ideas as unfortunately a lot of white nationalists do on false science, um, on ideas about, uh, myths about black on white crime or IQ differentials between races, things that are not true and that all good science reveals to be not true. And Allison, because she herself gave the the IQ test, she uh, understood this stuff. She signed up for a class called Stigma and Prejudice at the college and began bombarding Derek with all of these studies that showed actually the very real effects of discrimination on people of color in the country. And convincing Derek again and again that his ideas were um, not just wrong, but disastrously hurtful and harmful. Um, Until finally, by the time Derek was about to graduate from this college, the only thing that was left holding him to this ideology was the fact that it was the foundational piece of his family life and his identity. Um, And he knew that if he disavowed it, he would be essentially stabbing his family and in all likelihood would never speak with them again. you know, I think in a book that, that really uh, contains a lot of real courage, um, the last courageous act, and I do think it was courageous, belonged to Derek, mostly because he decided not just to disavow this ideology once, but decided that he needed again and again and again to commit himself to trying to do everything he possibly can to undo the harm that he caused, um, which is really real harm. I mean, I think Derek is haunted by the idea that, um, you know, how many how many people were marching in Charlottesville last year because they had gone to his white pride page for kids, um, or because they had heard him talking about these ideas on the radio, or they'd heard him give a speech at a conference. Um, I'm not sure what the number is, but I, I am sure that it's not zero. Uh, and I think that idea that all of this damage that Derek caused continues to live out in the world is something that, continues to sort of tear him up. It's like the definitive fact in his life that there's nothing he can do about that. And so I think the thing that Derek has decided is that uh, being silent, especially in this moment where he sees these ideas and um, in really large ways uh, unfolding around us in the country, and he sees a lot of the same talking points that he used as a white nationalist to reach out to people now being used by people in huge positions of power, Derek... I think has come to believe that being silent is the same as being complicit. Uh, And the only thing that he can do is devote himself, not because it's heroic, but because it's the basic decent thing to do, he has decided he needs to devote himself to pushing just as hard now or harder against this ideology, which means also against his family, which remains at the forefront of this, um, and and putting more effort into fighting back against it than he ever did into, into pushing for it.
0: With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Eli Sazlow and his work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering if Derek Black's life is in danger after the story became public.
1: I I think he's definitely taking a real risk. Uh, You know, I've... I've tried to avoid since the book. The book has only been out a week, but I know that it's um, it's sort of has overtaken Stormfront, the this really awful message board, uh, and you know I know because other people have sent me clips from David Duke's radio show or from Stormfront that um, you know they're, they're they're saying terrible things about uh, about Derek, uh, about other people in the book, um, about me. I mean, I think the real the real risk here was taken by. Uh, all of these people whose stories are are in the book, especially in many cases, people of color and Jews who are already the victims of these prejudices, who now are you know investing themselves in this story by putting their names in there and and saying honestly what has happened. Um, so you know, I I worry for them about that. I also think that. It was important to them that they they wanted to be fully in the story and and you know they wanted their perspectives to be fully in the story, which meant that they wanted it to be open and honest and transparent and to be named. And so many people in the book have taken some precautions in terms of just locking down email security differently because a lot of the harassment that happens on these dark corners of the internet is internet harassment, breaking into email, uh, you know, draining bank accounts, things like that. And but, uh you know, Derek and I went on uh, we went on we did some TV together last week. we went on the daily show and and the Daily show made, they said they they'd gotten a threat and they wanted to have extra security there and so I, I think like there is some real some real danger.
0: This audience member asks if most white supremacists become racist due to a lack of intelligence.
1: One of the surprises to me in reporting this book was realizing it's some I think we sometimes comfort ourselves or I sometimes comfort myself by thinking that people who have these really just uh, basic racist ideas have them because they're not smart or, or because they're, they're not thinking about things in, in critical ways. Um, what's much scarier is that actually many of the people in this movement are, are really smart uh, and have come to these conclusions in, in sideways ways and have used their intelligence to push those conclusions out into the world. I mean. You know, David Duke has a PhD and graduated from LSU. Don Black was like the top student in his class at the University of Alabama. And there's some of these people are smart in, in many ways and use, that, use those smarts for disastrous purposes. I think, like, for, for Derek, the fact that he was so intelligent, and also the fact that Derek, even when he was a white nationalist, he had tried so hard to base this ideology not on like a basic sense of, of hatred for other people, but on facts. So he had really invested himself in like this idea of, of medieval history as this dominant time for white Europeans where they, you know, they, they were conquering for the white race. And in fact, and he, became, he decided to become a medievalist for that reason. In fact, once he started to study history and began to learn more about that period of time, he realized that actually uh, Islamic culture was far ahead of European culture at that moment, and, and also that these you know Europeans had never identified as white, and that concept was really nebulous and didn't really exist until you know the 1600s here in English. Um, so I think Derek was smart enough to figure out the ways he was wrong, and then you know also brave enough to acknowledge it, and then to do something about it. I, I think. You know, for many people, that's um, that's a hard road to travel because we're all really dismissive initially. I think of ideas that don't uh, conform with our own. Like it's um, that's not just a problem for white nationalists. We're I think the country's increasingly polarized. We all exist in our in our bubbles that confirm a lot of our ideas. And um, so I think the people who were able to present this information to Derek in a way that he could accept it and understand it built relationships with him that were also relationships that existed outside of just debates. You know, they were. You know, he came to trust some of these people. So with Allison, once he trusted her, once he cared about her, uh, he clicked on her emails and opened them and read them, whereas earlier in his life, Derek had gotten tons of hate mail from his White Pride Kids page and just deleted it, didn't even, didn't even want to read it. And so I think the relationships were a foundational piece to presenting this information to him in a way that he even was willing to hear it.
0: This question is about Derek Black's mother and their relationship.:
1: Making this story even weirder and uh, the like horrible world of white nationalism even weirder. Uh, so, so Derek's mother, her name's Chloe, she was married first to David Duke. And they met at LSU, uh, and they had two daughters together. They were married for six years, I think, something like that. And, And then she divorced David Duke uh, and then a few years later married his best friend, Don Black, who, uh, who had taken over the clan from David Duke married Don Black and, uh, David Duke was the best man at this wedding. And then they, they had a kid and that kid was Derek. Um, so Derek, you know, all these like David Duke's daughters are his half sisters. Um, it's this very incestuous, weird, uh, space. Anyway, um, you know, His mother is like almost, I'd say more emotionally committed to these really problematic ideas than anybody else in Derek's life. I mean, she's like a, Derek would describe her as like a a foot soldier for a cause. Whereas I think his father is, um, you know, is, is much more, thinks much more in the world of ideas and his mom thinks much more in the world of emotion and is just like, uh, so when Derek disavowed this ideology, still uh, his he and his father are able to have a little bit of contact and and um, his his mother uh, you know experienced it as as a death um, and um, and reacted with like extreme vitriol uh, and and reading many of the emails that she sent to him,, uh, you know I, I can't even imagine how painful it was for 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 him um, but but she, uh, yeah, I, I think, She's she's unbelievably committed, um, and uh, and also just really passionate about it in scary ways.
0: This audience member asks if some of this racism is rooted in the difficulty of achieving the American dream, and seeing immigrants and other races as people getting in the way of that.
1: In some ways, like reporting this book also was a lesson to me in realizing that the biggest problem, or one of the biggest problems facing our country, is not... It's not Don Black or David Duke or like the far fringe uh, extremists. It's the fact that many of their ideas, because of what you're talking about, um, are really resonant, unfortunately, with pretty large parts of the country. And so, you know, Derek and his father, when they were going around to recruit people into their movement, they, they always said they were looking for people who started a sentence by saying, I'm not racist, but. Um, and then, you know, that was basically like the entree to these people probably agree with us. Uh, and so they would go to, you know, they, w- they would have all these tactics like going into, uh, they would record these country music CDs in a studio that were more explicitly uh, white pride. And then they would go to like an Alan Jackson concert that was attended almost only by white people in the deep south. And they would hand out these CDs to people in the crowd and um, like sort of, you know pushing pushing people who they thought were likely to share a lot of their thoughts uh, further further towards being more explicitly white nationalist. and And the problem right now is um, messages that are more explicitly racist, at least in my in my view, um, are 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 pretty common on a on a national scale. and and you know a lot of those ideas, I think enable people who have some of these um, problematic beliefs to be more vocal about them and to also go, Go harder into that space. Um, white nationalists have always believed that, like the great opportunity for them, is you know America because of its really problematic history, uh, set up as a country to privilege white people. They have always believed that eventually America will go back to that, um, and eventually when when white people begin to identify more as a minority in the country, they will bind together. And because they've been privileged and have the vast share of power and wealth, they will do something drastic to take the country back. Um, unfortunately, in like, election data, it bears out that that's happening. The last four presidential elections, we vote more along racial lines than we ever have before each time. Um, and I think that's what white nationalists consider the most encouraging sign for uh, the destabilization that they root for.
0: Our next question is what Saslow's most uncomfortable or fearful moment was when writing this book
1: I spent a lot of time with uh, with Don Black, Derek's father um, you know sometime with David Duke sometime with Richard Spencer who's like who uh, Don sort of adopted as like the next Derek the sort of heir to this the young heir to this movement. Um, and it was I never felt personally in danger although I was always careful to like, text my wife and let her know where I was and like when she would hear from me again. And, um, you know, it was more, but like sometimes really uncomfortable because they would be, you know, asking me, uh, you know, is anybody in your family Jewish? Who's Jewish? Saslo, what kind of last name is that? What percent Jewish? What, you know, and, and, um, you know, just conversations that were unpleasant. Uh, it's also, but I also realized that it was um, the only way that this book was going to be good. Uh, and the only way that it would reveal something about this movement was if I spent time with those people, and um, you know, not in any way giving them space to put their ideas there in a way that's not challenged, because the entire book is a challenge to their ideas, um, and I would say like an invalidation of their ideas. Um, but to understand the strategies and the tactics that they've used, um, so that all of us can know more about how to push back against them and and what the real danger is. And um, and also, I think Derek and Don's relationship. Uh, is really central to the book because Don, while he believes disastrous things and has caused huge amounts of damage in the world, also is a father who like loved his kid more than anything else on the planet and and who was so proud of him. Uh and, and for both Don and Derek, that was a relationship that was the primary relationship in their lives. And, and I think, you know, unless a reader understands that and understands how much they really do. Care about each other and how real the relationship is. It's difficult for people to understand why it was so hard for Derek to eventually stab him in the heart, basically. And you know, and so uh, I knew that I needed to write about Don not not as like an archetype of evil, which which frankly is also it's not only less interesting, it's just less true. Like it's, um, it, I think it's it's more frightening t- that these are not cardboard villains. They're they're people largely like us, who are capable of doing really dangerous and scary things. Um, and so that meant, for me as a reporter, trying to do what, what Don and people like him have often not done for most people, which is trying to see the humanity in him uh, where I could find it. Um, so that hopefully readers can, can, uh, can, can see it for the complicated thing that it is.
0: This audience member wonders how Sazlow was able to get Don Black to talk with him.
1: You know, I think I've thought about that a lot. Uh, I think the first part is that once Don realized that Derek was telling me everything um, and that uh, all of these other people in Derek's life were telling me everything, I think Don realized it's going to be better if we also tell our side. Um, But I think the true reason is that talking to me about Derek um, facilitated a conversation for Don with Derek that the two of them weren't having and don't have and, and can't have. Uh, they don't they don't talk to each other. Uh, Don never really knew why Derek had changed his mind. He found out in the book. Um, and so I think spending time with me and talking about his kid uh, in a weird way was like sentimental for Don and made him feel attached to his son again. Um, and, and I think that that's probably why, you know, he He might have initially agreed to talk to me because he thought we should get our side in here, but I think as as we began to spend a lot of time in conversation, um I think part of him liked talking about Derek uh, even though it was painful it was it was like talking about a you know a kid that he'd lost, so I think that was a big part of it. Thanks for asking.
0: This audience member inquires if Saslow had to leave his job to write this book
1: um I was given or I took time away from my job um this is probably more more detail about journalism and book writing than anybody wants, but basically I took a leave of absence uh, from the post where they, you know, they said, we won't, you know, you can come back to your usual job. Uh, I took nine months away, I think, from the paper and 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 you know and, and worked on, on just the book. Um, and I was working on it also for some time while I was still at the paper.
0: Another person wonders how Sazel was able to gain Derek Black's trust.
1: You know, in terms of winning over Derek's trust, um, some of it is that it, it was the things the things that he saw happening around him in the country, the rise of the far right in Europe, um, the the anti-refugee uh, and immigrant sentiment that he saw informing so much of of the international conversation um, in 2016, 2015. I think those those weighed on him in ways that he felt like he needed to. Uh, he had something to say about it. His experience had something to say about it, and. Um, and he felt like it was too important not to talk about. Uh, but I think like, the other thing is, so th- the first time that I met Derek, even after he finally said, okay, I'll talk to you, he told me to meet him in Ann Arbor, um, and I thought that that was where he lived, uh, just because that's a normal thing to assume, like, okay, I'm gonna come to Ann Arbor. Um, and once I got there after spending a day with him, I realized like he did not live there. He was also staying at a hotel. He'd sort of selected a random city in case he changed his mind, he could disappear again and and, and we uh, you know the first day that I talked to him, all of his friends who become these key players in the book uh, Matthew Moshe, they all had code names so one of them was Shabbat friend, one was sailing friend because he'd met them on a sailing boat and you know and so I think the act of building trust as a reporter, in my experience, is basically the most simple part of it. Is investing time first, genuinely caring about the stories that I write and the people that I'm writing about, like genuinely caring about understanding what this, what what happened and and getting it right, and and then showing up again and again and again and again, um, and and you know, um, I think just the act of listening and really investing yourself in trying to understand something tends over time to make people feel comfortable. Um, and in this case, because it was a book and not a, a longer piece for the Washington Post, which is what I often do, I had a lot of time to do that. I mean, I, I think I spent, you know, hundreds of hours with, with Derek, I'm sure. Um, I made, uh, you know, 10 trips at least from, from where I live in Oregon to uh, to either Michigan or Chicago, where he is now, or went with him to Florida the first time that he did go back to see his family, and you know, so so um, a lot of it was just just being there, and then those relationships build up over time. It still is, you know. I think it's. I always want to make really clear that it's like important to note that the people in the book, it still is like a, they take on all the risk. It's like such an a. An, not just for Derek, but for everybody in the book, and for everybody that I write about, it's a really brave thing to decide that you're going to trust a reporter uh, with like everything in your life. And in this case, it was everything. I mean, Derek, you know, sent me 10,000 pages of G-chats uh, from college. That like, you know, first of all, thankfully, so many people in the book were millennials, and they document their lives like every second. So there was a lot of material. Um, but also, nobody wants to read 10,000 pages of G-chats from a college student ever, under any circumstances. Uh, so that's a lot of trust. Um, and and you know, people have have sometimes asked over the last week, like whether if Derek and I are friends, or and the truth is, like there's I'm, it, it, there's a closeness that's closer than most friendships, but it's also a very different relationship because I'm, I'm a reporter in his life or was a reporter in his life and not a confidant. So with a friend, like you ask them to confide in you and then you keep it to yourself. And I was asking Derek to confide in me with both of us knowing that I was then going to tell everybody uh, or at least a small number of people who buy books. Uh, So, you know, that's a very, um, it's the, the power imbalance makes it a really complicated relationship. And it's, it's a huge uh, act of faith for, for people who are, um, who are choosing to trust reporters. And, and I like story to story and book to book, I, I think that the primary, my primary responsibility is to earn that trust and to do it justice.
0: Our next question is if any of the students wanted to have their name changed in the book.
1: None of them. Uh, there's one student, so there was, there was another uh, student, a, a, a woman on campus who was a victim of of Derek's prejudices, who in like a... Derek didn't know that she was Jewish uh, and started dating her before anybody knew that he was a white nationalist, then realized she was Jewish. um, And uh, predictably, that went really badly. And she she decided that she wanted to go by her middle name in the book. Um, Everybody else in the book wanted to be who they were. I think that they, um, you know, because of course, being in a story like this comes with real risks, but it also—I think—they're proud of the fact that they did something important, and and and, uh, and they they deserve that. So um, yeah, and the other thing is those three people are all still really close to Derek. I mean, he and Allison—that relationship—also going to be spoiling a little bit of the book. But that relationship, as like first, got super intense through these debates that they were having, and then as Derek's ideas began to change, that sort of intensity and the intensity of those debates as he was changing his mind about white nationalism also fueled a romantic relationship and they're still together. So like they're, you know, Allison, Matthew and Moshe also, I think sort of took it on themselves to, because Derek essentially lost his family and all of his connections, the three of them and a few other people in the book sort of have continued to take it on themselves to form a community around him uh, so that he has some support. So they're all still really close to them.
0: An audience member here wonders how writing this book has changed Sazlow's worldview.
1: It's it's changed in ways that are sort of divergent. I mean, Derek's, I think I, I, this story has taught me to sort of believe in the power and possibility of personal transformation in ways that I don't think I did before. It's like if if somebody who is raised to be the future heir to this movement can uh, end up so far on the other side as like a a rising in prominence, anti-racist activist, um, that gives me hope that smaller transformations, which are really the things that are more necessary for a lot of people in the country who have these problematic ideas, I think they're possible. Um, So that part makes me hopeful and also has made me decide to invest myself in having those conversations with some people in my life that I wouldn't have had them with before, like you know, people that uh, would be at the table with me at Thanksgiving and I would say, I'm not gonna talk about that. I know they're not gonna change their mind. Um, And now I feel like I, will take it on myself to, to try to at least uh, lean into having conversations about some of that stuff. On the other hand, um, I don't think I knew before I began reporting this book how connected white nationalist ideas are to a lot of our national moment, um, and how so much of this rhetoric that has been slowly, like sort of, um, you know, white nationalists have spent now decades trying to sort of sanitize this ideology from its history of bloodshed and violence, um, even though that's still at the root of all of it. Uh, and they've been successful enough that many of their ideas are now things that I see you know, many politicians and many other people tweeting about on, on Twitter. And, and, and they're presented in the exact same ways that white nationalists would present them when they were recruiting. So, uh, that has made me scared for um, some of the things that are that are happening in terms of uh, race and and discrimination in the country.
0: This question is if Sazlow's book is going to be adapted into a film.
1: I think that that is a possibility. There are also a lot of ways that I think it could go really wrong. Um, in that, you know, so, so because I write these longer pieces, sometimes they in Hollywood it's called they option something like they buy the rights to make it into something. Um, my limited, in my limited experience, and also just as a viewer, like all of us, uh, things tend to get like simplified and turned into sort of um, simple polemics that are like a, a redemptive story about like a you know a child from a, a racist home. Um, yeah, and I think Derek and some of the other people in the book are really. I think what makes the story powerful is the nuance, uh, and I think I worry about something being done that would lose the nuance. I, there are options for. Um, there are possibilities of things that that I that I think might capture the nuance, but I think all of us will have to be very sure that that will happen before we would we would want to do it. Just because I think if the story gets oversimplified, um, it it won't do any good. And and basically, I want it to do good. The other thing is, like just in writing style, I hope that uh, for anybody who's read the book so far, or for anybody who reads the book, like I'm, I also am not writing polemic. And and the book, I think, is like, it's packed with suspense. Uh, there are people going undercover to like white nationalist conferences. There's, you know, there are parts of it that feel like a, a developing um, love story. There's like, it's, I think it, it moves really quickly. And also the style that I try to write is, um, you know, I'm not, it's not packed with like really dense. There are, of course, parts where like the academics around him are changing what he's thinking that lean into that. But um, Mostly it's a story about people where, where, as a reader, you're watching them talk to each other and going through these tense moments. And, you know, it's all told through scene and dialogue, like a movie would be. So I hope, I hope that that will help as well. It's, it's not, uh, the book is not dense and academic, I, I hope.
0: <laughs> this question asker wonders what happened after Derek Black left behind his racist ideology.
1: I think there was a moment um, you know, for Derek when when he broke away from this ideology, a part of him thought maybe there was hope for his father to do the same thing. Because, you know, Don Black has always believed two things beyond anything else in the world. He thinks that white nationalism is the correct ideology, and he thinks that his son is like the smartest and most capable and most perceptive person he's ever met. So suddenly when Derek said, All of this stuff is wrong and evil, like Don's paradigm was broken. Like either his son was not as smart as he thought he was or he was wrong about all of his ideas so for a while Derek thought maybe maybe there's some hope that I can move him and um, I think the truth is for Don uh, you know Derek is now he's 29 years old he has um, he he can he can continue on and live other uh, live live a life for Don if he said if he admitted that he was wrong about everything he'd done in his life he would not only be invalidating his entire existence but he would be Essentially acknowledging I've spent my life as a monster, um, and and uh, so instead, what Don did um, in in like a part of the book that I think reveals the darkness of him um, is that he, after Derek left, reached out to Richard Spencer, uh, this like young uh, ascendant, you know, also smart, went to UVA, uh, went to Duke, then went to University of Chicago, and now is sort of like the uh, the the. Prominent young neo-Nazi living in D.C. Um, and um, organizing marches like Charlottesville. So he's he's one of the people who's filled in that role.
0: This question asker wonders what's next for Derek Black.
1: So I think at the University of Chicago now, I mean Derek is uh, you know his his beliefs are uh, you know are, are have changed so radically that he's that that community probably feels much more like his own. Um, so I think it was more strange at New College when he, um, when he had these really, uh, when, when it was like polar opposites colliding. Um, so so, I mean, Derek has done things, like he's written a few op-eds for the New York Times about, about these issues. Um, but also what he's doing is he's, because he's really smart with online stuff too, he goes on to Stormfront and like, Extracts the IDs of people who are on there, people who he thinks that maybe he can impact and move to the other st- other side, and does targeted outreach to them. And um, he also, he he's like uh, he's just smart in ways that are very different from from uh, how I hope I'm smart. But he's he so right now because he realized that uh, the Islamic world in the ninth and tenth century was um, was in fact like. The the great society that history has sort of forgotten in some ways. Derek, so he's he's in the last year of his of his PhD program, and as like a in his career he has switched to now he's learned Arabic and he's studying the Islamic Middle Ages um, and trying to bring more attention academically to that. He also this summer uh, was like a expert consultant for Facebook trying to help them deal with issues of extremism and polarization online. And so he's got his hands in a a bunch of different stuff.
0: The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering about Derek Black's reaction to the book.
1: Up front, I mean, Derek, I think Derek understood. I was very clear about the fact that the value of this book was that it needed to be, journalistic and factual, which meant that I was going to be reporting not just on Derek, but it was going to be a story that was coming from all of these other perspectives. The students of color on campus who were the victims of these ideas, um, the the people who had had impacted him, that I was going to be not just talking to Derek about his life, but sort of exploring this entire universe as a journalist. Um, And so that meant that it couldn't be a book that I was doing with Derek, uh, because also that would mean that um, that instead of being loyal to the facts and to the story, I would suddenly be loyal to him and his perspective of it, uh, which turns it into a problematic, a, a problematic book. Um, and Derek, I think, really quickly got that. I mean, he's um, he he does his own like narrative writing about history in his program, and and understood that the primary loyalty needed to be to the story and to the facts. And um, it's also true, though, that when I when I'm like printing stuff that's so intimate and close to the bone about somebody's life, and this is true every time, not just in this case, I feel like it's not, um, after somebody's given me that much trust and that much access, it's not fair for them to only be seeing it at the same time that everybody else can read it. And so I took a trip, uh, when I was done with the book, when it was, um, sort of early on in the production, you know, in, in where they were beginning to like put it into book form where I went to Michigan where Allison lives and Derek was there with her. Uh, And I basically, I felt like if I gave them the book, it would almost empower them to feel like they could edit it or be editors of their own story, which also didn't feel ethically sound to me. So instead I essentially sat across from them on a couch and read them the book. Uh, So they heard it a long time ago. but you know, I think I think now, uh, fortunately, I'm sure Derek. I'm sure there are things in the book that he's embarrassed about. I, I'm sure that many parts of the book are hard for him because, for much of the book, he is still a white nationalist saying horrible things. And Derek, I'm sure, seeing his old talking points printed out on the page when he was, you know, saying awful things, um, is really hard for him. I'm, I'm sure it is. I know it is. Um, but uh, I think, you know, he feels like. Um, up until up until this book, honestly, Derek's life was still really fractured. For a long time, nobody at the University of Chicago, nobody in his current life, knew that he'd one, once been the leader of this movement. Nobody in his old life knew who he was or where he was. And I think uh, what Derek has told me is that like he feels like this 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 book also gives his life cohesion. Like he owns his whole story now in a way that he didn't before. And and uh, he knows who he was, and he knows who he is, and it's like the book is like a bridge between those two things. And um, so uh, that was a really nice thing for him to say. It made me feel feel good about about what the book is. I I, I think a lot of what he wants to do is um, motivated by the fact that he feels real guilt and deserved guilt about some of the damage that he's caused. And um, I also sort of hope for him that at some point, like you're not living your life totally in the shadow of your first 22 years after being indoctrinated with ideas that you then invested yourself in and spread. Um, and so uh, you know, I think I'm glad that he's motivated to like, counteract the damage. Um, I also hope that at some point he's doing it for reasons that are not just uh, just feeling like self-loathing about, about who, he, who he was. Thank you so much, you guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you for coming. That
0: wraps up our Ramsey County Library Roseville event with Eli Saslow. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Kurt Brown at Anoka County Library, Northtown. Kurt Brown is a newspaper byline known to many through a popular and long-running Sunday history series in the Star Tribune. Brown's latest and highest profile release, Minnesota 1918, chronicles a particularly trying but pivotal year in our state's history. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.